Have you ever had to write a short bio for yourself? I used to hate that. Especially when you, you know, there's a very constrained space in which you have to write. Because how does one summarize the complex aspects of who we are in a very, very short period of space, right? Twitter has a place where you can put a little short bio on your profile. Here's some that I thought were interesting. Ellen DeGeneres. Ellen DeGeneres is his com comedian, talk show host, and ice road trucker. My tweets are real and they're spectacular. That's a Seinfeld reference for all the kids, I'm sorry. <laughs> if you're born after 1989, you don't get that reference. Shonda Rhimes, any Shonda Rhimes fans? Come on, give it up for Shonda Rhimes, no? Creator of such wonderful shows as Grey's Anatomy and Scandal. Hers is, I make stuff up for a living. It's not real, okay? Don't tweet me your craziness. That's perfect. Voldemort. Voldemort is running around, leaving scars, collecting my jar of hearts, and tearing love apart. Voldemort has a poet deep inside. These are some, obviously, you know, some humorous examples of our bios or the ways in which we might summarize who we are. But of course, there's a serious side to this question of who am I? Identity, the question of identity. Today, I feel like a lot of people are going through what I would call an identity crisis. A lot of people uh, that I've met and talked to feel like they've been asleep resting gently in a bed of identity and been forcefully and suddenly shaken awake. Or to mix metaphors, the foundations on which they've built their identity are crumbling or have completely collapsed. Race, ethnicity, culture, nationality, gender, orientation, partisan politics, morality, even faith and religion. These are just some of the areas where many people once had a firm understanding of who they are, and now not so much. I remember hearing about, uh, hearing a testimony from someone who said that um, they rooted their identity in their firm faith in God. But when that faith was suddenly and traumatically loosed, they felt like the ground beneath them evaporated, and they were just in a free fall. I think that's how a lot of people are feeling today. People are searching for something solid, something true, something real. And I think that's a big reason why we call this church Roots. Because people are searching for something in which to feel rooted. Maybe when you were younger, your identity was a lot simpler. You got your identity from your family, from your peer group at school, but then as you set out on your own, you had to rediscover who you are all over again. Or maybe you wrestled with your identity in relationship to categories and labels that society tries to give us, right? For example, some of us may have wrestled with what it means to be black or what it means to be white, 
or what it means to be Asian or Latinx. Maybe some of us have wrestled with what it means to be American or an immigrant. Maybe some of us have wrestled with the question of male and female, question of our orientation. Maybe some of us have wrestled with partisan labels like conservative and progressive. I know a lot of us have wrestled with this label, evangelical. That is a dreaded word right now. So what if you and I don't neatly fit into these categories or these labels that we're supposed to? What if we don't conform to other people's expectations for us? Well, if that's how you feel, feel like you don't fit, you might be a misfit. <laughs> and, that's, and that's good, right? Because you've come to the right place. We, a big part of our identity, is to be a community of misfits on a mission finding our identity in Jesus. So, that's why last week we began this new series. We are in a, uh, a season as a church. A refresh season is what we've been calling it. And we have regrouped, and we are refocusing on our vision, our mission, and our values. And so this series is called Radical, because this spelling of the word radical is a botany term. It's a term that means the part of the plant that develops into the primary root. And I think that's a perfect metaphor for where we're going as a church. We want to know what it is that we're called to do and who it is that we're called to be. Amen? Amen? And I believe Ephesians is the right text for that search, for that digging deeper. Because Ephesians is where our seed verse as a church is found. Our seed verse comes from chapter 3, where Paul says that they, being rooted and established in love, may have power. And that's not the only relevant thing about Ephesians. Ephesians is unique among the letters of the New Testament because it doesn't deal as directly with the kind of challenges in the local church. It's more of a 10,000-foot view, kind of a misfit, I'd be calling it a misfit manifesto. It's a, it's a huge, lofty summary of all that Paul has been teaching the churches that he's planted about Jesus, about the gospel, and about the church. So, this morning we're going to dive right into the deep end of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1. But I'll spoil it for you a little bit. The theme of this passage is identity. <laughs> Didn't see that coming, did you? So we're going to be talking about what does it mean to find our identity in Jesus. And what a time, right? What a time in our world right now to be talking about identity. I feel like it, it couldn't be a better time. But before we dive right in, let's pray for the illumination of the Holy Spirit. God who sees us. God who knows us, really knows us. May we sense your loving gaze this morning as we turn our hearts and our minds toward you. To hear from your written word and from your living word and from your spirit. May we have sensitive hearts and malleable minds. May the light of your Holy Spirit shine upon the scriptures so that we can see what you want us to see. 
so that we can live the way you're calling us to live and love the way you're calling us to love. We want to be who you say we are, for you are our creator and our sustainer. Make of us what you will. We are your people and you are our God. In the name of the God who is lover, beloved, and love itself. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So you're welcome to follow along in your own translation of the Bible, if you have one. You can, if you have one on your device, or if you have one of those printed ones. <laughs> or you can follow along on the screen beside me. We're going to start in verse 3, Ephesians chapter 1. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he has chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. In accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given to us in the one he loves. Verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. In accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put in effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Verse 11. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity to the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. Verse 13. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked with him, in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Okay, now that's a dense passage of scripture. But here's a free pro tip about interpreting any piece of literature, not just the Bible, but in any piece of literature, if the author repeats a phrase or a word 11 times in a short passage, that's probably what that author is trying to communicate most. That is a deliberate way to communicate something emphatically. And what's been repeated in this passage 11 times is the phrase in Christ, or better translated, in the Messiah. Christ just means anointed one, which is reference to the Messiah. So what that means is that, is that this passage is not meant to be taken individualistically, which is what we often do, is what we're prone to do. But this passage is meant to be taken corporately. I cannot stress that enough. Paul is not teaching that God has chosen or predestined individuals, but that God has chosen and predestined the Messiah, and only then those who are in the Messiah. So verse 3 says, in the Messiah we are blessed with every spiritual blessing. Verse 4 says, in him, the Messiah, we are chosen to be holy and blameless. Verse 5 says, in love God predestined us to be adopted 
to, as his sons through Jesus the Messiah. Verse 6 says, we have been freely given grace in the one God loves, the Messiah. Verse 7 says, in him, the Messiah. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Verse 9 says, in him, the Messiah. God has made known the mystery of his will. Verse 10, under one head, the Messiah. God is bringing all things together. Verse 11, in him, the Messiah. We are chosen and predestined according to God's plan. And verse 12, in the Messiah, the first people to place their hope in Jesus to the praise of God's glory. So, I'm going I'm to pause. I'm not going to do 13 and 14 just yet. But there's an identity here that we have to pay attention to. That identity is being in the Messiah. All of these blessings that the passage is talking about are meant to be applied to those who are in the Messiah. But preachers like to apply these directly to you and I. Preachers like to say, you've been chosen, you've been predestined, you've been adopted. Because we like to feel special, don't we? We like to feel special, and that, that makes us feel special. But what this passage is saying is that Jesus is the chosen one. Jesus is the blessed one, the predestined one, the redeeming one, the revealing one. And you and I become recipients, beneficiaries of those blessings when we are found to be in the Messiah. Amen? Amen. So naturally, this makes us want to ask, how does a person get in the Messiah? How do I get in on this identity? That's what verse 13 and 14 are all about. Verse 13 and 14 read, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. So Paul says that the way that his readers have been included in the Messiah is, number one, they heard the gospel. That makes sense. Number two, they believed the gospel. And number three, they received the Holy Spirit. That is how a person might be considered in the Messiah. Now, you and I might use other terms for this. If you're familiar with these terms, conversion is a term that we use for this, or new birth, or surrendering one's life to God. These might be familiar concepts to us. This is familiar to me because this is what happened to me. What happened to me was, when I was 17 years old, I was a desperately poor only child of a schizophrenic single mother. And I was gang involved and I was a high school dropout. I was living a dangerous lifestyle and I was not looking for Jesus anywhere. Jesus was not on my mind. But through a series of events, which I don't have time to tell you all about, I came close to dying twice in a very short period of time. Once being shot at and once driving my car under the influence and wrecking it. And shortly thereafter, I was invited by a close friend to, to witness his baptism at a Pentecostal church. So I was very reluctant to accept, but I did. And that night, the spirit dis disrupted my life, spoke a word through a pastor that cut me to my heart, and I heard the gospel for what felt like the first time. 
And I chose to respond. I chose to believe. And I was baptized. I was plunged beneath the waters, and I emerged, and I felt like a new person. The Spirit marked me with a new kind of love that I didn't even know that I was capable of. The Spirit marked me with a heart that was open towards God and tender again when it had been so hardened. I was included in the Messiah when I heard the gospel, believed, and received the Holy Spirit. But this process doesn't usually happen all at once. That's pretty rare. Most people, it happens over a period of time. In fact, I was reading this week a wonderful book called Who God Says You Are. It's a book by Dr. Klein Snodgrass, who's a distinguished professor emeritus at North Park Seminary in Chicago. Here's what, here's what he writes. Sometimes conversion is immediate and radical, and sometimes it involves a period of time. Sometimes it involves tearing down and reorientation before rebuilding. Sometimes the tearing down has already happened to us. And conversion is a process of restoration. But it is always a process of moving us from thinking our life is our own to the realization that our lives belong to God. And it is always, it always brings healing and wholeness in numerous areas as we walk with God. Being in the Messiah is a process of being joined with God through the Holy Spirit. Being in the Messiah is a process of being restored and healed and made whole. Being included in the Messiah, it might entail a deconstruction of our false selves. But it will always entail a remaking of our new selves in Christ. We find identity in Jesus when we surrender our whole selves to God, give our allegiance to Jesus, and are joined with God through the waters of baptism and by receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't claim to understand why God chose baptism to be the, the means of grace, a way in which we are joined with God through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. But here's what Paul says about it in Romans chapter 6. Paul says, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? That's weird. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, that we too might live a new life. For we have been united with him, for if we've been united with him in a death like his, then certainly we will also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So finding identity in Jesus means to be joined with God through baptism and the indwelling Holy Spirit. But if our study of identity stopped there, then we would still be in that trap of thinking very individualistically. That would be all about me and Jesus. 
But there's more to identity in Christ. There's more to finding our identity in Christ than just me and Jesus. Being included in the Messiah isn't only about being joined with God. It's also about being joined with the community of Christ. And specifically, it's about being joined with people who are different from us. The diverse family of God. How do I know that? Because in the passage we just read, Paul uses a lot of language to start with. Uh, he uses we and us a lot. He says, we have received election. We have received adoption and redemption. These are references to Israel. Israel is the group that God elected. Israel is the group that God redeemed out of slavery in Egypt. And, and Paul says in, in Romans that Israel is the group that received the adoption to sonship. But then in verse 13 and 14, his language shifts. And he says, and you also re received all these things. And when his language shifts to you also, he's talking about the Gentiles. He's talking about those who are now being added to the church. Remember, we read uh, Acts 19 last week. And we saw how Paul begins his ministry in Ephesus, where? In the synagogue. He starts with his Jewish community. And then he adds to that the Gentiles who are coming to faith. So, they too are engrafted into the covenant that God made with Israel. Imagine how difficult that must have been. Just for a moment. Think about what it was like to be a first century Jewish person. Taught your whole life that the Gentiles are unclean. That they are pagan idolaters. They do all that stuff we don't even talk about. Because it would be shameful to even mention the stuff they do. And then suddenly, you are now told, we are one family in the Messiah. Imagine those meals. Those are some awkward meals around the table, right? This week, I listened to an episode of Fresh Air. Anybody listen to Fresh Air? Yeah, we got some NPR nerds. <laughs> Terry Gross interviewed Derek Black and Eli Saslow this week about their new book, Rising Out of Hatred, which is about Derek Black's journey out of white nationalism. He grew up in white nationalism. His father was a leader of the Ku Klux Klan and a good friend of David Dukes. And his father founded the largest white nationalist website in the world, Stormfront. And <clears throat> what caught my attention about this story was that what began to dismantle Derek Black's white supremacist beliefs was real relationships with people who were different from him. In fact, specifically, it was Jewish people. When Derek Black went to college, he was invited to Shabbat dinners by his Jewish classmates. And at these Shabbat dinners, he just participated like anybody else. They didn't confront him and do an intervention. They just invited him. And he got to know them. And what he realized in getting to know them was that Jewish people were not the inhuman monsters that he was taught. Isn't that amazing? It's almost precisely what happened in the first century. 
In the first century Jesus movement, Paul preached that Jesus of Nazareth was not just the Jewish Messiah, but was the Lord of all nations, all people groups, all ethnic groups. And so God's family was very, very diverse. And that when God's family comes together, we share a meal that Jesus gave us called the Lord's Supper. And at this meal, we share not only to participate in the life of Jesus through his body and his blood, but also to participate in one another's lives. Listen to this. This is what Paul said to the church at Corinth. He said, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? The obvious answer is yes. <laughs> and is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? But there is one loaf, and we who are many, we who are diverse, we who are Jew and Gentile, are one body. For we all share the one loaf. When we come to the Lord's table, we find identity in Jesus, not only by being joined with God through Jesus and the Holy Spirit, but we find identity in Jesus by being joined with God's diverse family. This meal points to the future. It points to that future where all divisions, all ignorance, all hatred, and all violence will finally and completely be eradicated. And we can participate in that future in part now, right now. And that's what Ruth is all about. Here's what John saw when he saw that future. John of Patmos. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, every tribe, every people, and every language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. In this heavenly vision, there is a corporate identity. Everyone is wearing white robes which in the first century symbolized being healed and being made holy, being cleansed. And everyone is holding palm branches, which means they're all worshiping Christ together. But we cannot overlook that Paul can distinguish different ethnicities in this crowd. Paul can tell, I mean John, John can tell that there are people from every tribe and nation represented. He can see that. And what that means is that the new creation does not erase our beautifully distinct God-given identities. And that's critical for us to understand. Our unique and particular identities are God-given and will be redeemed along with the rest of creation. We will not cease to be beautifully diverse in the new creation. We will have our beautiful diversity healed made whole and glorified. And that's good news. The reason why this is so critical for us to understand is because finding identity in Jesus could be used and sometimes is used to erase people's identities, to whitewash people's beautiful diversity, to colonize non-Western cultures, and to maintain a racist status quo here in the United States. Finding identity in Jesus could be used to, to talk about something called color blindness or culture blindness 
But I'm here to say, and I, and I think Roots is here to say, that finding identity in, identity in Jesus is not about erasing our distinctiveness, it's about destroying our divisions. And there's a big difference between those two. A book that I found myself constantly recommending, and I will recommend it to you now, is Disunity in Christ by Dr. Christina Cleveland. As a social psychologist, she looks at the church through that lens, and she asks these very incisive questions about the forces that keep us divided. And we are divided as a church in America. Here's, here's how I think she puts it really well. She says, the idea of a common in-group identity that trumps all support, subordinate identities might seem to suggest that we should all relinquish our cultural identities and ignore our cultural differences. However, to do this would violate the metaphor of the body of Christ, in which each group expresses its unique perspective and function in cooperation or coordination with other groups and in submission to the head, Jesus Christ. Catch this. Culture blindness is simply disunity disguised. It falls short of the unity in which we, to which we've been called. I think that's critical for us to understand. And here's the moment when I, I think we ought to pause and, and just think about the moment that we're in as a society right now. The moment we're in right now is a very deeply divided, polarized moment in our society. If there was ever a time when I did not have to sit here and convince you that there are forces at work in society that are driving us apart, it's right now. They're so obvious. I don't have to tell you, you know, because you see it everywhere. The society all around us wants to give us labels and fit us into categories by which we define ourselves over and against one another. And this is a classic tactic of the enemy, is it not? This is called divide and conquer. When we are divided, we're defeated. But when we're united, we're, we're invincible. This week, millions of Americans, I'm sure many in this room, and myself included, were glued to our screens watching the hearings of a Supreme Court nominee. And as I watched, and as I interacted with other folks online who watched, I saw clearly that everyone saw the hearings through their prism of their identities. And everyone saw, kind of like a Rorschach test, everyone saw what they wanted to see. And pretty much everyone landed where they started, right? If you went into those things thinking one thing, you left thinking the same thing. While others view this week's events, well, well some, some view this week's events as an attack on a good man's reputation and a conspiracy concocted by progressives uh, to prevent his appointment. While others viewed this week's events as a power move by conservatives to ram through his nomination at any cost. Regardless of our political opinions in this room, which we're entitled to, Remember I said they're like belly buttons? Everyone's got one? 
regardless of our political opinions about the hearings, what was most clear to me after all was said and done was that many, many women this week uh, were hurting, that it was painful, that it was sometimes re-traumatizing for, for women. And especially if you've been a survivor yourself of assault or abuse. When I commented on that, I was scolded by some folks online, saying that I was being partisan, being political, and not thinking about the men as well. Men, men are also hurt by abuse and assault. That's true. Regardless of our various views on partisan politics, here's what I want to say to every woman in this room, is that you are worthy to be seen and to be heard. And I'm sorry that this week was horrible. This week was horrific. And it's even, it's even more horrific to me that when I think about the women who've been silenced in churches, who've had the courage to come forward and say something, and have been told that their pain was their fault, their assault was their fault, and have been shamed for it, that is absolutely unacceptable. And it has to stop. Regardless of our political persuasions, the body of Christ has to be a space in which women and girls are safe. Amen? Amen. The body of Christ has to be a space in which the pain of women and girls is never dismissed or denigrated. Or else we aren't the body of Christ. If you're here today and this week was painful or infuriating or re-traumatizing or just exhausting, I don't want you to leave today without being prayed for. I'm going to make myself available, and uh, Oshida's going to make herself available, and I'm going to ask members of the leadership team, Naomi's going to make herself available. I'm going to ask that we stick around after communion and pray for one another. This is a time when we as a community surround one another and lift each other up. I think this is one of those moments. Finding identity in Jesus is not just about the individual. It's about being joined to a community, a diverse family of God. And it's about our particular and unique identities being made whole, being healed. Jesus once said, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. So when he was teaching his disciples what it meant to find identity in him, he gave them a meal. That's how he did it. He gave them a meal. And he said, this is my body. Take and eat. And then he took the cup and he gave thanks. And he offered it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So when we come to this table this morning, we come to this table to live into a different story. The story that we might be tempted to live into is a story of our own success. You might be tempted to live into the story of someone else's expectations. You might be tempted to live into the story of the American dream. But when we come to this table, we come to this table specifically to live into the story of Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection. New life, new creation, and a diverse family that makes each and every one of us whole 
in our unique and particular identities. So I'm gonna ask 